Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. Sister, when we've been there 10,000 years, I'll be able to sing like that. Oh my goodness, y'all. Well, happy fall break for some of y'all or the end of fall break. Uh, PT asked me to preach for him and um, I'm always thrilled and honored that uh, I would get to fill in, pinch hit or come out of the bullpen, as they say, uh, for my pastor who I love. Uh, Yeah, if you have your Bible, leave it open to Ephesians 2 if you have it on your phone. Um, You know, stopping there, that's that's fine. PT asked me to preach 1 through 5, but just so you know, we're going to go through 10. We're just going to have to keep going just a minute. I won't keep y'all too long. Um, But as you know, Paul in Ephesians, he's going to talk about the gospel story has become our story. There's gospel belief and gospel behavior. That's where he's going. But before we get into all that, I just want to ask you a question. Who doesn't love a good rags to riches story? I mean, think about it for a second. You know, from the basement to the top. Um, The underdog. I know y'all like some underdogs in here. Uh, What about Cinderella for you ladies? I don't know. Cinderella? Rags to riches? The princess? What about Cinderella Man for you guys? I don't know if y'all saw that movie. Russell Crowe? The boxer? Or keeping in the boxing theme, I grew up on Rocky. Just forgive me for a minute. I love the Rocky Balboa series, except for five. If you saw five, you know what I'm talking about. There are only two good quotes in the whole movie, so I'm going to tell them to you so you don't have to watch Rocky V. The rest of it was great, but Rocky V is horrible. Uh, Rocky is getting picked on. His friend Polly gets smashed by Tommy Gunn, and Tommy's trying to pick a fight with him. And his manager says, Tommy Gunn only fights in the ring. And Rocky says, my ring's outside. And he whips his butt outside. So if you, you don't have to see the movie now. The rest of the movie's terrible. But the rest of that series, if you're growing up as a kid like me, I love it because I identified with this younger, I was the younger brother, two older brothers, and I saw the little guy win. We all know, so if you don't like Rocky, I'm going to come to your neighborhood. Here it is. We all know that Apollo would have whooped Rocky in less than two rounds in real life. But guess who wrote the script? Rocky. It's Hollywood, y'all. Sylvester Stallone wrote the script, and he wrote it as an underdog. True story, he was a struggling actor. He wrote the script, and as he was trying to get Rocky off the ground, he had to sell his dog. He sold his dog, Butkus. The first thing he did when he got paid was he bought that dog back, and the dog's in the movie. Talk about an underdog story, right? That's that's cheesy. I'm sorry. That was cheesy. I'm sorry. But you're going to remember that now. I grew up watching all the Rockies. Rocky's a true underdog, right? He wanted to prove he wasn't a bum. That's what he said. I want to go to the distance with Creed. I want to prove I'm not a bum. He wanted to get his shot. He wanted to make the most of it. And he wanted to prove to himself, to Adrian, his girl, and to the world, to Philly and the world, I'm not a bum. All right. There's something in you that resonates, even though you know Apollo would have whooped him. Even though, like, whatever the underdog story is for you, there's something in your soul that resonates with an underdog story, a rags-to-riches story. I want to tell you that today, our rags-to-riches story is not quite like this. Because Paul is going to tell us 
that our rags were like grave clothes. We, we didn't make the most of our shot. We actually blew it, and we're flatlined dead on the mat. That's where we're starting today. And so we're going to talk about this passage along three lines of thought. One, who we are by nature. Paul's going to be honest, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you, it's worse than bad. Who we are by nature, that's the first thing. The second thing, though, oh, and this is better than good, who we are by grace. We just sang about it, or I tried to sing, but you were singing. Who we are by grace. And then finally, we're going to talk about the implications of that. So what now? But let's, let's tackle our first one, who we are by nature. You see, Paul's going to start off in verses 1 through th- 3 with this really bad news. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So at first, he's going to talk about you. And just so you don't get it twisted, Paul is not just pointing the finger at you, you Gentiles. He's going to say, we all once lived. And then he just throws everybody under the bus, like the rest of mankind, we were all children of wrath. Okay? So, I don't know about you, but if you take away verse 4, it actually would read something like this. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you are now walking following the course of the world, following the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the children of disobedience, among whom we all live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and we are, by nature, children of wrath, like everyone else. Paul's going to tell you we're all in the same boat here, and guess what? This boat, it's not sinking, it already sank. Yeah, you know, some people view salvation as like, oh, the, the boat's going down, and Jesus throws you a life preserver. The boat went down, and you did too. You're already toast. And what dead people can do to, to get salvation is absolutely nothing. Dead people can't do anything. That's pretty bleak, right? It's actually totally bleak and depressing and dark. I mean, a few weeks ago... Uh, we were at discipleship hour, and Brother Warren, who I saw a minute ago, he was, he was leading us through uh, total depravity, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I, I appreciate he got that uh, job to teach because, you know, sometimes you don't want to look at the depth. You don't, you don't want to go into the darkness, right? We, we want to be quick to turn on the light, and we're going to turn on that light, don't worry. But... I want you to see something. As we were talking about total depravity, and just so you know, if, that, if that's a word that, or a phrase that isn't, it, it might be new to you, it, it means that, look, every part of you has fallen. That in Adam and Eve, their rebellion, we all rebelled. Can I just say that we all love that Jesus represents us, but we hate that Adam and Eve represent us, yeah. right? We, can't, we want it one way, but not the other, right? I died in Adam, right? And I am li- in this living death walking around in this spiritual death apart from God's grace. And so as Adam and Eve rebelled, God said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. It's a spiritual death, but also physical death. It's a disintegration of every relationship. My relationship with God, myself, the rest of humanity, and even creation. Thorns will infest the ground. Death is coming. Every relationship, it's a comprehensive fall. Total depravity doesn't mean that you're all Hitler. 
or that you're all as bad as you could be. <laughs> Total depravity means that every part of you, your mind, your emotions, your body, your will, every part of you is tainted with sin. And that's bad news. <laughs> that's not fun to hear, I know. Every part of us. This is what PT is going to get into in Romans. Uh, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not trying to steal his thunder. I'm just going to tell you, Paul in Romans is going to hit this hard again. He's going to quote the Old Testament. He's going to quote Isaiah. He's going to quote the prophets. And he's going to say, there's no one good. There's no one who seeks after God. Not a one. Ne'er a one. Not you, not me, not your mama. Nobody. And so it feels so hopeless. That's actually what Warren asked. He said, how does this hit your heart in discipleship hour? It got quiet for a second, and somebody spoke up with some brutal honesty. They said, it just feels hopeless. And I was like, amen, sister, it does. Because left to ourselves, Paul already told us in Ephesians, we were without hope and without God. And we have to start there, y'all, because this is the significance of a proper diagnosis. Now, my wife is a nurse at St. Jude. She works in the ICU. And do you know when people come in with diseases I can't pronounce, how important it is to understand what is going on in the body so that you can ha actually move them toward health? Imagine you going to the doctor because you have a headache, and they give you two Tylenol. Or your kiddos, they give you some baby aspirin, and they send you on your way. Call me in the morning. But you have a brain tumor. That Tylenol is not going to help a whole lot. This is, this is Paul lovingly giving you the proper, comprehensive diagnosis of what's really going on with you and with me. The Bible is very clear about who we are by nature. We're not just sick. We're dead. We don't just miss the mark. We go our own way making our own marks. We don't just step across the line we charge full speed away from God and his loving boundaries. We have no shot at getting it right. We have this inability to do good, to live out of righteousness and justice, to live out of love for God and neighbor. We can't. So I want you to understand this morning before we turn on the light, I want you to consider how dark this is. This is actually horrible to hear. Whether you're a believer this morning or an unbeliever, or you don't even know where you are, whoever you are, you're worse than you think you are. <laughs> I'm worse than I think I am. I can't possibly understand the depth of my own depravity and sin. I really can't understand the full weight and depth of my junk. And I don't think you can either. You're, I don't care how bad you think you are, some of us in, in this room might struggle with depression. And might struggle with a little Eeyoreism, this woe is me, right? You might struggle with that. You're worse than that. You are, and so am I. We're actually worse than that. In fact, one author put it this way, who, who are we by nature? We were dead, disobedient, demonic, and doomed for destruction. That's a lot of Ds, but that's an F, right? You were Dead, disobedient, demonic, doomed for destruction. In other words, and not to make light of it, but we were bums. 
We're on the mat. We're dead. That's who we are by nature, y'all. Everybody say, but God. God. Say it like you mean it, but God. God. Mm. Let me tell you something. It doesn't stop with verse 3. And we already had chapter 1, y'all. Chapter 1, we didn't get into it today, but Paul already talks about the riches of God's grace and his inheritance that he is giving you and his inheritance in the saints. So apparently God himself, Jesus, feels rich because he got you. He inherited you, we inherited him, we're both rich. I don't understand it, but I believe it's true. Here we go. Who are we by grace? We had to go to the depths of the darkness so that the light of the world would come and flood in and he would bring us health and life and peace. And here it is. I don't think there are two sweeter words you can hear this morning, but but God. But God. This is both an introduction to the gospel, and it's a really a summary of the entire gospel. But God is an introduction to the gospel, and it actually is a good summary of the entire gospel, because the gospel begins and ends with God. As PT uh, was teaching us about the gospel, it is both personal and cosmic in scope. Like Jesus holding everything together and reuniting everything under him. It's not just about me and Jesus. It is. But it's about y'all and Jesus. It's about all of creation. It's about about the king and his kingdom. Right? So it is personal in scope, but it's also cosmic in scope. You were dead, but God made you alive. You were a prisoner, but God set you free. You were following Satan, but God has seated you with his son, Jesus. You were once under wrath, but God has set you under his grace. You were guilty, but God paid it all. He removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. You were both a victim and a victimizer. You were both wounded and you're a wounder. But God grants you vindication and healing. You once walked like the world walked, but God has enabled you to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. How does he do this? Well, I know, I know Colorado last, uh, what was it, another night? But think about it for a second, you football players, you football uh, lovers. So Colorado needed somebody outside of Colorado to step into Colorado. They had a dead program. I think they won one game. I don't know. Maybe they were on life support last year. I, can't, I don't know. But just go with it for a second. Boulder, Colorado, people weren't, you could go to every game before Dion got there for like 200 bucks. And now you can't get a seat in the state. You can't sell hot dogs at the stadium for 200 bucks. Like, Dion breathed new life into a program, and he brought some new players. But here's where this falls out. D- I love Coach Brown, don't get me wrong. But but Jesus, he doesn't say, uh, I'm going to run you off, and I'm going to bring some five stars in. Jesus says, I got you, and I want you, and I'm going to make you great. <sighs> Jesus says, I got you, I want you, and I'm going to make you great. This is what God's up to. He's taking losers, sinners, dead folk, and he's making them alive, and he's making them Christ-like, and he's helping them love God and neighbor. That's, that's what God's up to. But God. Notice what Paul doesn't say. (laughs) You were dead, but you figured it out. But you were sorry enough 
but you found a way to turn it all around. It was ugly, but you proved yourself worthy and worth saving. But you tried so hard, but you didn't mean to, but you finally mastered it. He says none of that. He just simply says, but God, because all of this is from God. It's through God. It is by God alone. What else does Paul say? Paul says, all this bad news, but God being rich in mercy. Everybody say, rich in mercy. Man, look, I don't know everything that means, but I know this. God is filthy, righteously rich in mercy, and he loves to spend it on you. He's got no problem spending it on you. He wants to. God is rich in mercy. Y'all, part of what it means when Jesus, when God says that God is rich in mercy, when Paul says God is rich in mercy, Paul knew his Old Testament, and he knew Isaiah. He was a Pharisee. He could quote, like, large chunks of the Bible. And I believe Paul knows that Isaiah talks about God abundantly pardoning. God promised through the prophet Isaiah that your righteousness is as filthy rags. You, you're making me sick. I can't handle it, right? But I will abundantly pardon. Meaning, somehow... I'm not just going to pardon. I will do it abundantly. Like, somehow I'm going to overpay. <laughs> I'm going to pay it all, and I'm just, just to make sure I'm going to overpay. I'm going to do it abundantly, far above what even needs to be done. I'm, I'm going to abundantly pardon. One pastor said, I'm going to, God will not let your evil overcome his good. He's going to drown the mountain of your sin in the sea of his mercy. He's not going to let your darkness, your death, your evil, your rebellion, your fill-in-the-blank, it is not more than his mercy. His mercy is more. If verses 1 through 3 weren't enough to repel Jesus from you, what do you think is going to keep God from you? What actually has the power to keep the God who revealed himself to Moses saying, I am a merciful God, slow to anger, full of compassion, and I show unfailing love. What's going to keep that God from you if verses 1 through 3 didn't? Nothing. The answer is nothing. <laughs> nothing is going to keep God from you, from showing you mercy. Uh, kiddos, I don't know if any of y'all traveled for fall break, um, but if you Think about the places you want to go or you would like to travel one day or the furthest place you've ever traveled. God says he's going to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. Can you imagine galaxies 12 billion light years away? I can't. We, we have like telescopes that show us stuff that I'm like, that really is there. God made it. And somehow God like knows all that stuff and holds it all together. Do you know that 12 billion light years away God can't see your sin. <laughs> so guess what? You ain't going to find it either. God has chosen to remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. So I think that means that he is choosing never to look at it again. Because Jesus paid it all. So guess what? You don't have to look at it. You, you don't have to hold on to it either. 
His mercies are new every morning. This is the well that will not run dry. This bank doesn't need to be federally insured. His mercies are new every morning. So, y'all, um, God has new mercies divinely packaged for you, just for you, every single day. Exactly what you need. His mercy is enough for you. Well, how do you know that? Well, let's just look at one example in Matthew 9. Jesus is hanging out with punks. And I say punks because these are people who steal your money, tax collectors and sinners. These are known, reputable punks who the Pharisees look at and say, this dude is a friend of sinners. Why does he recline with these punks? How is it that, that, that this Jesus is a friend of sinners? And you know what Jesus said? With all your learning, you need to go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. See, you're over here tithing from your garden, but you're neglecting justice and mercy. So I don't know that you really know who God is because God delights in mercy. I delight in mercy. Go figure out what this means. I love mercy. Why does God love mercy? Because he loves you. Why does he desire mercy? Because he desires you. God delights in mercy because he delights in you. Y'all, he is rich in mercy. Friend of sinners is his name. <laughs> friend of losers, friend of bums, friend of sinners. That's who I am. Well, why? <laughs> Paul says, because of the great love with which he loved us. This love comes from God. He's not looking at you being like, oh, five-star athlete, brilliant, beautiful, talented. The reasons God loves you rest in God, not you. And that's really good because that doesn't change. Like, if he loved you because you were loving, what happens when you have a bad day? You, you stop being loving and kind and patient. His love would stop. If he loves you because you're brilliant, what happens when you get bumped on the head or you get old and get dementia? He loves you because he loves you. That's why. And there's such freedom in that because you didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. And guess what? You can't ever lose it because it rests in him. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Not even death. Not your own death. Not your spiritual death. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Why did God do it? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Like I said, you are worse than you think, but Paul also wants you to know even more so that you are loved beyond your wildest, uh, beyond your wildest ability to think or comprehend. I can't even say it. I can't even get the words out because it doesn't make sense. He, God loves you more than sense makes. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out a way to tell you that God loves you because he loves you and it doesn't make sense. Here, here's what Paul says. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would know the hope that you're called to in Jesus. He's praying that for the Ephesians. You know what else he's praying for the Ephesians? That they would be rooted and grounded in love, that they would know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, which surpasses knowledge. Paul's praying that you would know the love of God in Christ Jesus that is beyond knowledge. I love the Opening, uh, some of us were a little late to church this morning. No shame. Jesus paid it all. Uh, but we, uh, we had, what, what was the call to worship? It was 
knowing this God who's revealed himself that is beyond knowledge. Y'all, the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. So yes, you can't fully comprehend the depth of darkness that's in you and the depth of darkness that's out there, but you know what? God is at work in you to help you comprehend the love of Jesus, which is too heavy for your puny mind. And y'all are smarter than me. I'm, I'm not coming down at you. I'm just saying, you can't take it all in. That's how much God loves you. What for? <laughs> so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Y'all, I love this line. Paul says, so that, he's done all this, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches, there's the riches, of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do y'all know that there's a sense in which God is just getting started showing you kindness? God is never going to get tired of showing you kindness. Never. God is not going to ever stop being gracious to you. Ever. He says, as long as the seasons change, my love will remain the same. I'm never going to turn away from doing good to you. And here, if we, if we have verses 8 through 10, are they already up there? Look at this. I want you to see something. Paul's going to go on to say, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So 8, 9, and 10, these are verses my dad made me memorize when I was eating cereal in elementary school. And I would challenge you to memorize them too or teach them to your kiddos. But this, <clears throat> I'm wondering, okay, I have like a, a, a hit list that my dad you know, gave me, his playlist, and this was one of them. And if you know anything about my dad's story, he grew up a pagan, running far away from God. And uh, someone got converted the day before on his baseball team and came and talked to him about Jesus. And he got converted. And, like, it, you know, he, he knew a day when he didn't know Jesus. And then literally the next day he did. And so my dad loves to talk about God's grace in his life. And he knows years and years and years of running away from God to now walking with God. And the only thing is, what, what explains that? Grace. Not my dad's goodness. The only thing my dad contributed to his salvation was his sin that made his saving necessary. Right? And that's the only thing we contribute. And so it is by grace. This is how we get in. This is how we keep going. And grace is what gets us home, we just sang about. Grace is going to lead us home. It is all by God's grace. And it's through faith. Let me just talk for just a second about what faith is and what it isn't. It's been said that faith is the beggar's hand, not the king's gold. Faith is not work, but it accepts the work of another. Faith is not righteousness, but it is accredited to us as righteousness. Faith is not greatness, it rests on the greatness of Jesus. Faith is not our physician, it's not even our medicine, but it places us before the great physician who heals all our diseases. 
One author put it this way, our faith is but our touching of Jesus. And what even is this in reality but his touching of us? You see, when we think about our faith, sometimes we're worried about the strength of our faith or how much faith we have, and we're worried about that. Can I give you a little illustration that's true? Um, I had neck surgery, I don't know, six, seven years ago. How long ago was it? Something like that. Uh, I have the neck of a 75-year-old man because I was the little guy on the football field and I got hit a lot. And so I had a ruptured disc and I had pain shooting down my right arm. And I literally could not, it was taking my like, breath away. I've never had nerve pain. I consider myself a pretty tough guy. I'm not. But I, I try to be. And um, this pain, I called my wife and I'm like, I need you to take me to the doctor. I don't think I can drive. <laughs> and, and I wasn't dying of cancer, and so she was like, you're fine, come on. Uh, but no, she, she realized something's really wrong. And so she takes me to the doctor, and uh, you know, they're trying to figure out what's going on. This ruptured disc, there's like six pieces pushing on a nerve, and I can't function. So the doctor goes in, and he takes it all, he takes it all away. <laughs> he goes in, and he takes the problem out. And then he sewed me up. And then I wake up, and I have, like, staples in my neck. Got a cool scar if you want to see it. But true story. I got up, and I hugged him. I hugged this man. Because my, I could breathe. It didn't hurt anymore. Like, okay, it was a little sore back here, to be honest. But I was on some painkillers. I had nothing going on right here. It didn't hurt. Okay, how silly would it be? I hugged the nurse, too. She was in there. She, got, she was helping, I'm sure. I literally asked, I said, can I hug you? Like, I love you people. I hugged that old man. That doctor, he, did, he was not ready. <laughs> How silly would it be for me to sneak in the operating room and go pick up his scalpel and kiss it? Thank you, scalpel. That's silly. We wouldn't do that. You'd get arrested, germs. Like, but, it would, but on top of that, it's stupid, right? It's just stupid. It was the surgeon who did the work, not the scalpel and whatever. I don't even know what other instruments he had. I don't know. Faith, you don't go around kissing faith and hugging faith. You look through, the, you, you hug Jesus. You hold on to Je The surgeon did all the work. Faith just simply says, you've done it all, so I can rest. I can be healed. Don't worry about how strong your faith is. The one you have faith in is strong enough to save you, right? So the author of Everlasting Righteousness, Horatius Bonner, he says, while you're worried about how strong your faith is, what matters is that your faith touched the perfect one and all is well. <laughs> so stop worrying about, Jesus never demanded that you have strong or perfect faith, right? He wants you to come to him and have faith in him. He is the strong and perfect one. Y'all, Paul, just so you don't, don't get it twisted, he says, this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. So, before we land the plane, what Paul is trying to do in verses 1 through 10, he's trying to tell you something, he's trying to drive this point home, that salvation that God's grace, that his kindness, that his redemption, that his forgiveness, all this stuff is based on his character, not yours. 
okay? It all comes from God, but God. It's beginning to end, it's all God. This is all God's character. And when we, when we get that, it actually starts to change our character. Because we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved to good works, or for good works, he says. We are God's workmanship. We are his works of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, he, so, so what now? This is how we'll end. The third thing we want to talk about is, okay, now that we know that this is where we were, grace lifts us up and shows us the depth without putting us down. Grace says you're blind, but here's new eyes to see. <laughs> Grace says you're broke, but you're filthy rich in Jesus. Grace loves you enough to tell you the truth about how awful you are, but it says you're loved more than you can imagine. This is grace. It's a book, not a page. It is the whole shooting match. It's not one stopping point alone. It is the whole story from beginning to end. It's bigger than you think it is. So we are God's workmanship created for good works. You see, Paul talks about gospel belief and gospel behavior. And when he's talking about gospel behavior, he's saying you've been risen with Christ and seated with him in the heavenlies. You have new life, participation in the life of Christ now, and you get to be part of his new family. So what is this new society, new family, what's it supposed to look like? What are we supposed to do? Well, verses 11 through 22 is your homework. It's, I'll just tell you, it's gonna, you're going to go home and read it, and it's going to talk about the division, the hostility between Jew and Gentile. It's been killed because Jesus is alive. And anything that would tear you down and separate you, out of the two, he made one new man. And so you're not strangers, you're not aliens, you're fellow citizens, saints, and members of the household of God. And if God can do that with a thousand-year-old Jew-Gentile relationship, he can do it with rich, poor, black, white, male, female, old, young. He can do it with anybody. And so a multi-ethnic church like this is a beautiful demonstration that we can lean into. We don't have to create unity. God already did. But God, Jesus already did it. You are just as united to your brother and sister in Christ in this room as you are united to Jesus sitting in the heavenlies. The only thing is sometimes we don't act like it. And so we need to repent of our not acting like it and agree with God, believe that that's true. And so we do need to be eager to maintain that unity, but it's already bought, paid for, covered. But God, he's already done it. Now we just live like it's true. Like he bought and paid for it. One writer put it, uh, put it this way. I think it was Martin Luther. He said, God doesn't need your good works, but you know who does? Your neighbor. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. So here's the point. God has prepared good works for you that you should walk in them. Guess what? We have the joy of walking in new life with Jesus, following him and asking ourselves, what do I think the God who delights in mercy would do in this situation? Hmm, maybe he can help me delight in mercy. <laughs> Just maybe he can help me delight in mercy as well. Whatever good works they are, being a neighbor, being a teacher, being a mom, working at your place of business, I don't know what God's called you to, but I, but I do know he wants you to delight in mercy. <laughs> he wants you to believe that he is rich in mercy and delight in it as well. 
Y'all, my two-year-old nephew came around the corner one day, and he was wearing a diaper, and only a diaper. That's acceptable as a toddler. But he comes around the corner, and uh, I'm on a ladder, and I'm painting the top of my brother's house. And my brother is on the bottom, and he looks over. He says, hey, buddy. And he smiles at him. And when you smile at a toddler who's free, roaming around the backyard with their diaper on, they're going to smile back. And so he smiles, and he's like, hey, bro, you want to you wanna paint the house with Daddy? And the toddler goes, yeah, yeah. So he runs to Daddy. I mean, he's excited. He's grinning ear to ear to paint in the summer heat. But he thinks it's a great idea. You know why? Because his dad smiled at him and invited him in. And he just wants to be with his dad. And so that little bitty hand grabbed the paint, the roller, and the big hand got it. And they got some paint. And I'm watching this whole thing. I took a break. I'm just looking. I'm like, I can't believe he's... Do you know how hard it is to paint with a two-year-old? On your house? Like... Daddy's little helper wasn't doing a whole lot of helping. However, in this moment, I was watching something. I didn't have any kids at the moment. And I'm watching something happen. I'm watching my brother delight in his son. He didn't give a rip about the paint, y'all. You know what he was doing? He was helping his son grow up into manhood, even as a two-year-old. This is what it's like. This is what it's like to get stuff done. This is what it's like to work hard and enjoy the fruit of your labor. This is what, he was teaching him a hundred different things in that moment. But the main thing he was teaching him is, I want you to be with me and I want you to work with me. That's what he was teaching him. He got that paint and he was, now, who was painting the house? I promise you my nephew was painting the house. He had his hand on it. He was smiling and he was working. My nephew was painting the house. But we all know who was painting the house. My brother was painting the house. Who was putting forth the more effort? Who was actually in control and getting it done? My brother. My, my nephew had no shot on his own of getting that thing painted. We know his daddy had it, right? In the same way Paul's going to say in Philippians 2, 12, and 13, he's going to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which if you stop there, that's terrifying. That's the two-year-old paint the house. Then he says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there is this sense in which, yeah, you are to get to work now. The work is done. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. He delights in mercy. His mercy is more. You ain't got to do nothing. He is for you, always sealed. Now guess what? Now you can go tell other people about that, and you can live like that's true. You have some good work to do because you're already saved. You're completely chosen. You're completely sealed. You're already sitting with Jesus in a lazy boy on a throne in heaven. You're okay. So now you can get to work because your salvation and who you are, it's already sealed. You have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. You, you don't need any other guarantee. Y'all, now we get to be two-year-olds working with our dad because our dad delights in us. He's not worried about the work. <laughs> He's concerned for us. He wants to be with us because he delights in us. So friends, I don't know how you walked in here. Some of y'all might have had a fall break. You were like, break? <laughs> I wish. You know? Uh, some of y'all need a break. 
I don't know if you came in here distracted. I don't know if you came in here tired. Uh, I don't know exactly where you are. Some of y'all, I'm sure, were happy to be in here this morning. Here's what I want to leave you with. Adam and Eve blew it. They lost paradise. They lost walking with God in the cool of the day. But God clothed their nakedness and shame. But God made promises to send one who was going to crush the serpent. (laughs) Abraham and Sarah were old. They were as good as dead. And God promised them a son. And they, they struggled to believe. And they tried to take that promise in their own hand and fulfill it themselves, which turned into a mess. But God gave them a son of laughter. Joseph was sold by his brothers falsely imprisoned, forgotten, and left. But God remembered him. And God fed the multitudes, nations through him. Moses was on the run. He said he couldn't speak too good. He had no plan of leading. But God freed his people. Israel was terrified at the Red Sea but God split the sea and their enemies. Rahab was on a path to destruction, but she heard about God, and but God, he saved her in her house. Hannah couldn't have a son, she was barren, but God gave her Samuel. We could go on and on. David was the forgotten son, the runt, but God made him king. One of my favorite people is Zacchaeus, because he's a punk. But God made him generous. All the disciples fled Jesus when he was arrested. But God gave him Jesus and raised him from the dead. And he did it for them and he did it for us. So I know you're struggling, but God is rich in mercy. I know you're tired, but God will never get tired of you. I know that just walking in here and finding a seat sometimes can feel overwhelming, but God has seated you with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. I know sometimes we feel lost, but God promises to save us by his grace. I know that some of us are wondering if our work is even making a dent, if it's even, if it's it's doing anything. But God prepared good works for us to walk in. And he says, don't grow weary in doing good. The gospel is going to reap a harvest. The gospel has a heartbeat. And I bring dead things to life. We started this whole thing saying we are dead on the mat. And we were, but God. But God. Look, I have a big forehead. My kids remind me of that. I want to put but God on my forehead as a billboard. Y'all, I hope you walk away with that laughing because I, it is laughable, right? If I were PT, I'd be clapping and jumping. The football coach in me would want to come out and yell at you in love, but God, but God, but God. Let me pray.